island paradises to mountainous kingdoms, a few countries and territories sprinkled around the world have somehow remained COVID-free. Or have they? This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Willie Lowry, and this week, we're looking at the places with no coronavirus. The first cases of coronavirus emerged in Wuhan, China in December 2019. And in three months, lockdowns were being implemented across the world, on every continent except Antarctica. But not everywhere has reported cases of the virus. Is it luck, geographical isolation, or lack of diagnosis and reporting infrastructure? North Korea, a notoriously secretive state, is a well-known name on the list of countries. To date, there have been no confirmed cases from the East Asian country. Its neighbor, South Korea, had a major influx of cases in late February, with over a thousand new cases in a single day at its peak. With fast action by early May, daily numbers were down to the low double figures. And yet, its neighbor to the north claims there has not been a single case of COVID-19. This claim has been met with skepticism by experts outside the country. U.S. General Robert Abrams, head of the U.S. military forces in South Korea, went so far as to say it was untrue. Martin McKee, a professor of European public health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, explains the situation. The North Korean authorities have actually clamped down on movement across the Yalu River, but it would be very implausible to think that it has not already got into uh, North Korea and uh, and is posing a problem. The other difficulty that North Korea has is that, of course, it has a well-developed, very basic health system. But certainly in some parts of the country, in fact, all parts of the country, even some of the poorest areas, you're seeing a burgeoning private provision of health care, which is outside the formal system and uh, does not have the uh, infrastructure to test for coronavirus. The North Korean authorities have been given uh, tests by the Chinese, uh, so that, and there have been humanitarian supplies that have been brought into the country, uh, but uh, it's still quite a, a concern. For some countries, guarding their image as a strong, impervious nation is very important. Another country on the list, Turkmenistan, has a similar story. In Turkmenistan, I don't think anybody really believes the data. Uh, For many years, uh, the country claimed to have only two cases of HIV, and uh, that was not plausible. There are very good uh, accounts of outbreaks of plague in the 1990s that were denied by the authorities there. So I think the case, Turkmenistan is really quite an exceptional country in the extent to which it uh, is in denial about outbreaks of infectious disease going back to the time of uh, President Nias of. Turkmenistan has uh, always had a very powerful cult of the leader, uh, President Niazov, the first president in the uh, after independence, um, was um, famous for naming um, days of the week and months of the year after members of his family, uh, produce, building gold statues of himself and uh, Uh, so on, and uh, declaring himself the leader of all the Turkmens. And there was a conscious image to present this as a country that was 
really in the forefront with um, uh, bringing in a lot of money for buildings in Ashgabat and creating that that sort of um, cult of the leader built um, supported by the the imagery and with that of course it was impossible to concede failure uh, it would be uh, unimaginable that you would say well here we are we're having outbreaks of plague for example so there was a, a denialism there uh, very difficult for anybody to get information about what was really going on it's impossible to know exactly how many cases are active in a country without testing everyone regularly but most places on the list with no cases are very isolated with small populations one of the territories yanmayan island in the arctic ocean has no permanent residents at all in the busy summer months, the number of people on the island goes into the 30s. Bouvet Island, between South Africa and the Antarctic, is unsurprisingly on the list because it has a population of zero. A significant proportion of the territories untouched by the virus are in the Pacific. Here's Martin again. Well, first of all, many of these countries are very isolated, even at the best of times. So if you take countries like Nauru or Tuvalu, they typically only have uh, two or at most three flights to uh, usually to Fiji in their cases every week. So it is really quite difficult. And the, the airfares are extremely expensive. Uh, so movement in and out is quite challenging. And I think that's really the, the main factor. Uh, also, the populations are very uh, small. Uh, so if a case had managed to get in, even though they've got very limited resources, probably they could have contained it. But the main issue is remoteness. Christmas Island in the Indian Ocean lies more than 1,500 kilometers northwest of Australia. The tiny speck of land is governed by Australia, but it's actually closer to Indonesia. This island paradise is one of the few places on Earth that has no reported cases of COVID-19. David Watchhorn runs a diving school on the island. The Melbourne native says it's bizarre to be in one of the few places on the planet where there are no cases of coronavirus. The atmosphere here, uh, to be honest, is, I guess it's a mixture between we know we're very lucky um, and we are also concerned that uh, if the virus was to get here, it would be fairly devastating for a lot of members of the community. So we've been very lucky to be able to move about, drive cars, go bushwalking. I've been able to go scuba diving. Shops have generally been open. Um, the restrictions have been here and they, they're now very much sort of released a, a lot more than anywhere else in Australia. David knows firsthand just how seriously the island is taking the virus. He was visiting family members in Australia when the borders started to close. I got to Melbourne on the, the 7th of March and I pretty much returned on the 20th of March. Um, as I watched the world situation evolve, having friends in the UK, um, in America, I, I was watching what was going on and realised that I needed to work out where I wanted to be for potentially the next six months or longer. I felt concerned uh, staying with my parents who were in their 80s that me coming and going was adding an extra risk to them. Basically, I had to probably leave Melbourne, uh, even though I couldn't be with my family, to 
to go back to where my home is, which is Christmas Island. When David arrived on Christmas Island, restrictions were already in place. We were all in this room where they announced uh, what we had to do for our isolation, which was to basically get in our car and and drive straight home, uh, go home and um, stay there for 14 days. I think at the time there was a lot of confusion. We sort of said goodbye. I offered uh, as an accommodation provider. One of the teachers was concerned about going back to her family, so I offered one of our accommodation units to to her if she needed. That I was taken up on that, so they stayed basically with a sea view uh, property separate from their family. She she was concerned about her son that has asthma. So he went inside the house and opened the fridge to see what I had, of which some friends started delivering uh, some food. From, from there, it was, I was able to get uh, supplies that I needed. Emmanuel Samoglu, a journalist and former multimedia editor here at The National, was visiting the Cook Islands in the Pacific when borders started to close. The territory has no reported cases. I was just a tourist here. I was here with my family about six years ago. I worked as the political reporter for the daily newspaper here. We were, we were just, it was vacation mode. Uh, we knew the virus was spreading around the world, but it was something that was far away from our shores. We weren't really too worried about the virus coming here. And then things slowly started to change. Basically, there there was a couple of cruise ships that docked or actually just anchored off the reef here. And they were allowing passengers to disembark. At that point, Emmanuel says people started getting worried, but a mixture of good luck and early action meant the island preserved its no COVID status. If you look at a lot of the countries that are discussed that have done extensive testing, the Cook Islands doesn't, isn't mentioned, but it's up there with some of the most stringent testing genes that have been undertaken. So they tested a lot of the population. No positives came back. And after two weeks of shutting the country, there were still no cases. And that's when people said, okay, the country is COVID-free. A lot of the smaller islands, despite being isolated and having small populations, have acted quickly. Here's Professor Martin McKee again. Acting a few days earlier in the epidemic can be incredibly important. Just to take, I mean, to look at the figures, um, we estimate that the uh, number for COVID is about three. And uh, so if we just imagine that people then pass it on to the next set of people, just even every consecutive day, now that, that's um, simplifying it, they would go from one to three to nine to 27. And by 10 days, they'd be up to a huge number. And uh, just bringing that down a little bit by social distancing, you can really reduce that dramatically. But do these places need to be so vigilant? If there are no cases on an island that is already isolated further by a lack of travel, what's the purpose of the restrictions? Emmanuel feels the restrictions are not futile. The virus isn't here, but in many respects, we are carrying out our daily lives as the virus could get here and there's still some element of social distancing being practiced in the community many stores and outlets and different you know offices do have hand sanitizer available Um, but the truth of the matter is they're just precautionary measures and 
meant to keep up a culture of social distancing and hygiene because if like the country will have to reopen at some point it'll be good to have people in that mindset that we do need to have some aspect of social distancing in place professor martin mckee agrees in a globalized world as long as there is any case anywhere we are all at risk and uh uh, this is a particular problem because there are, of course, some countries where there is a real danger that the disease is out of control already um, or will become so. Um, we're looking in particular at Brazil and some parts of the United States. Well, we do know that social distancing is actually very effective. And the uh, countries that have done that best and done it earliest, and the key issue is to do it early. Uh, so Austria in Europe, for example, Czech, uh, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, moved really very quickly while they only had a few cases and then you can break the transmission. All of this fundamentally comes down to the mathematics. The mathematics are the, the transmission rate, the reproduction number, uh, the R uh, number that people talk a lot about. Some of these isolated islands have small populations in the hundreds. Professor Martin still errs on the side of caution. So uh, there were uh, a number of well-documented cases of relatively remote islands being affected by measles in the past, a very famous episode in Samoa, another in the Faroe Islands, uh, several in the Faroe Islands in the North Atlantic. And uh, those were in the days before the vaccine. Uh, so that highlights the importance of maintaining some degree of, uh, whether it's quarantine or some other measures, until this disease is eliminated from the world. As long as there is one case anywhere, there is a real risk. For many, being marooned on a tropical island during this pandemic may seem like an ideal situation, but Emmanuel has conflicting feelings about being an extended tourist during the crisis. We, we feel very, very lucky to be here, uh, mainly because the effect that a lot of people uh, are facing when they're undertaking self-quarantine. We haven't had to deal with that. We've been able to spend a lot of time outdoors uh, because, you know, there's uh, there's so much space here and you can quarantine and still find space to be outside. The climate's excellent. We haven't had the, the sort of horror of the virus right on our doorstep. But the flip side of that is that our loved ones and our friends and our families are being affected by the virus and we're so far away. Uh, I've had to deal with a, a little bit of, you know, actually quite a bit of worry here. Uh, my 99-year-old grandmother in Montreal, she, she was a positive. She got the virus. Uh, this is an amazing story. And she's now 18, 17 or 18 days asymptomatic. So she, 99 years old, she got the virus and she never had any symptoms. So. That was a really scary two weeks, being here, being isolated and not being able to talk to her or not getting the news and, you know, her being so far away. So it's, you know, it, it, the virus is still in our lives. For David, whose home is on Christmas Island, the situation has a similar polarity to it. He has had to deal with the isolation at a difficult time for him. I first heard about it from, uh, well, my phone rang at about four o'clock in the morning and I did see the, the phone name uh, sort of appear. Um, and my first assumption was they haven't looked at the time zone. So I sort of went back to sleep 
Um, so I got a phone call from a close friend of mine on the east coast of Australia in Queensland. Sadly, she's also told me about another uh, friend of mine passing a few years earlier, and it was almost the same conversation. And it was a conversation of, have you spoken to someone in the UK? Uh, at that point, you know. Um, you didn't know who, and they mentioned the name, Malcolm, of which I think you just hang up and call them back. Uh, so I probably spent half hour dealing with that, thinking about him and uh, his life and the time we'd spent together. Um, he was a scuba diver that I'd spent lots and lots of holidays with, uh, travelling the world with. Um, he was in his 70s and we were a close-knit dive club group. The rest of the day I felt uh, that I needed to message people. Speaking with them was difficult. Um, but I thought messages and emails were the best way, but also feeling in the UK that they were also at home. Um, they couldn't go and see each other. I was far away, but under the same conditions. They were stuck in their houses. I was also stuck in my house. So they, we probably felt maybe the same helpless, helplessness but from 15,000 kilometres away. The mental health implications that Emmanuel talked about are also a concern for David. I, I would consider myself uh, very strong in my mental health. However, I think that definitely this time has been very, very difficult. Um, there's definite ups and downs. Um, during the... Uh, departure of the mainland to get back to Christmas Island, I kept thinking, should I be with my family or should I be heading back to my home where I live by myself? I'm a single person. Um, and, yeah, the last person I've touched um, or hugged um, would have been, yeah, the, the, the 20th of March. As well as from the emotional toil, the coronavirus's impact extends to these isolated islands in terms of economy. David works for a scuba diving company on the island. Our business relies massively on tourism. The company Extra Divers brings in approximately 35% of tourism to the island um, in visitors. Uh, we only get about 2,000 tourists a year, so it's not a visited island for, by many. It's, um, it is in the middle of nowhere, but it's, it's a fantastic place that I definitely fell in love with. Uh, most people know it for the uh, red crab migration, and this is where 45 million red crabs head from the jungle down to the beaches to spawn in the, in the early morning to send out their eggs. Um, we get whale sharks. We had a bumper whale shark season this year that we were seeing whale sharks every day. I think uh, tourism businesses are definitely suffering. Those are mainly accommodation providers, um, the other scuba diving centre, um, the fishing charters, uh, all those businesses are uh, definitely suffering. 
Although there are still some places with no cases of coronavirus, the emotional and economical repercussions are still impacting these communities. Does Professor Martin McKee see a return to normal life? There is a cliche in old saying that no country is an island, but of course many of them are. And uh, they, uh, but even though they may be physically an island, they are connected to the rest of the world by international travel more so than ever before. So uh, unless we get to until we get to a situation where this is like SARS, in other words, it's been eliminated, then there is a continuing risk. And that's the real danger. We need a vaccine ultimately to provide the immunity to break that transmission. It will take a long time. Thank you this week to our guests, Professor Martin McKee, Emmanuel Samoglu, and David Watchroom. This is Beyond the Headlines. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe. And if you can spare a moment, leave us a review and let us know what you think. We were produced this week by Taylor Heyman, Arthur Edison, and Aisha Khan. I've been your host, Willie Lowry.